Okay, everybody, Hebrews chapter 7. And I'm going to try to get through this real, real quick. Hebrews chapter 7. I just told you all to turn to Genesis 14 because we're going there. But we are also going to be discussing Hebrews chapter 7. Lynn, you asked a question the last time we get together. What about this Melchizedek? Who really is he? I don't know an awful lot about him. Congratulations, you're not alone. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about him a little bit today. But I have entitled this message for you today out of Hebrews chapter 7. I've entitled it, Make Good Choices. And if there was a subtitle, it would be a sign of maturity. So if you did take the time to listen to that recording after our last meeting, and this was a couple of weeks ago, um, remember Lloyd started us on off, and he started off with a really good um, kind of charge for us. What do you see going on in here? And I didn't make a preparation in, in uh, five and six when we discussed that because I knew that Lloyd was going to be sharing. But based on what we said throughout the rest of that meeting, I started to get a whole bunch of insight into what the Lord was speaking to me out of those chapters. That's why I came back behind and I recorded what I did. Now, if you listen to that, chapters five and six, you'll recall that we're called to be perfect. Remember the discussion that we had and in that recording, we're called to be perfect, which in the recording I explained, it doesn't mean perfect without sin. It means mature. The actual word in the Greek means to be mature. And more accurately, to be pressing on to the call of the high, to be pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To run a ra the race in such a way as to win the prize, and that prize is perfection or maturity. <clears throat> Excuse me. It does not mean that we're saved, we say the sinner's prayer, and poof, we're perfect. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. And it's because we were created in his image, we weren't created him. Okay? Our goal is to aspire to the things of the Lord all day, every day, throughout every day, every day that we're alive. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're striving to maturity or we're striving to perfection. Okay? It's easy as a new believer to drink milk. And it's good. For those of you that have had babies, you know that, that period of time that they're nursing their bodies are growing very, very quickly. They're going through a lot of changes very quickly. And that's what we need also as spiritual babies. Nevertheless, as we grow, meat is available. And we have to learn how to strive towards that thing and move to things. So, so that's just kind of a recap of what we talked the last time. We are to be moving towards perfection not that we think that we've arrived or that we give up because there's no way that we're perfect, okay? And you'll recall, this is very, very important because this really impacted me and I want to remind you in Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus was talking to the church of Sardis in the second verse, he said, be watchful. Remember, he says, you have got a rep reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. He's not like a tang guy, hey, you're dead to me. He's saying, hey, you're dead to me. You got a good reputation. You go to church. You got a pretty church hat, right? You come in there 
You look good on the outside, but you're dead. In verse 2, he says, why? Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works to be perfect before God. Again, this doesn't mean that we're to be perfect in the sense that God is perfect, but we are always every day in every way mindful of our need to move in that direction. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7. We just read the chapter together. We read about Jesus as our high priest and that he's the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We read a little bit about Melchizedek here in the beginning part of the chapter. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, or the king of, yeah, the king of peace with the king of Salem. And how he was even before the first covenant, the Aaronic, is that how you pronounce that? The, the Moses, Mosaic covenant where Aaron's priesthood. Melchizedek was even before that. We read that. We just read that. That was the old covenant. <clears throat> we read about the oath, which comes, by the way, if you want to look it up, it's in Psalm 110, verse 4, where he says you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. It's actually verse 1 starts on off, you know, I, I'm going to make the world your footstool. That that verse that we all know, right? That chapter is where this oath, God says, I swear an oath, you're going to be a priest forever. And he's talking about his son, Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. Verse 22, we, re we just read, I just read it for you, that Jesus is a better covenant. The old covenant, the Old Testament, the law, we know about that. And Jesus is better than that. He's a better covenant. Remember, uh, where was it in in uh, Mark uh, 14, I believe, is, is where he's giving the, uh, the Last Supper. And he says, this is, the bread is my body, but the wine, this is the new covenant. And he was talking about, this is my blood, this is the new covenant. Okay, so we read all that. And I'm confident when we open the sun up for open discussions over here, we're going to talk about all these things. We're going to answer the questions that come about. But I, I, I got a little sidetracked on something. When I started to read this, while I was preparing to be able to share a word for you, I believe that the Lord showed me something in Melchizedek way back in Genesis chapter 14, and that's why I asked you to turn there. And this is one of those times that I believe, just like I say it time and time again, you all have heard me say this, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but doggone it, when he reveals something, that's ours. And he revealed something to me in the story here of Melchizedek back in chapter 14 of Genesis. And I want to set the stage for you. So did we all turn to Genesis chapter 14? Let me set the stage for you, okay? Chapter 12 of Genesis. This is, you guys all know this, but we're going to re, we're going to just quickly go through the last couple of chapters prior to 14. Genesis 12, Abram breaks out on the scene, right? In verse 1, God tells Abram to leave his family, leave his country, leave his everything, pack up and go, as he says at the end of verse 1, to the land that I will show you. 
In verse 2, he tells him he's going to make him into a great nation. In verse 4, Abraham's got all the suitcases packed. They're all back in the, in the Yugo, and he's taken off, right? In verse 7, right after, in verse 6, six he says he's passing through the land of the Canaanites. Verse 7, God breaks in on the scene, and he says, okay, this is it. This is the land that I told you about. And in verse 7, he builds an altar. All right? So Abraham was told, go. We don't know who Abram, I'm sorry, you're going to hear me use those terms interchangeably because we know God breathes on Abraham in a few chapters. (sighs) He breathes his breath of life right into the middle of Abram's name, and he becomes Abraham. Right? That's a Benny Hinn thing from years ago. God breathed his life, his ability to reproduce, his ability to become that father of many nations. So if you hear me say Abraham, same dude, okay? And then verse 10 through 20, there's a famine in the land, and this great man of God that has these great promises about having many children and being fruitful in the land, who has no kids, this great man of God says, oh, there's a famine, let's go to Egypt, okay? Enter chapter 13. And we discussed several weeks ago about in um, Genesis chapter 13, first verse, Abram and Lot are leaving out of Egypt wealthy. They're both very, very wealthy, right? Where does um, Abram go? But to the last place that he saw God. He goes to one of the altars that he's built along the way. In verse 7 of chapter 13, the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram, they're, they're in a little tiff because there's not enough herding grasslands for both these large flocks. So Abram grabs his nephew by the shoulder, pulls him on over to, this, to the cliff. Now he's not going to push him over. I know you're thinking, push him. He's not going to push him over. He says, look around, wherever you see, wherever it is that you want to settle, settle there. I will take second choice. Lot looks around, looks down to the Jordan Valley down there. It's green, it's plush, it's lovely. And he goes, I'm going to Sodom. That's kind of important. (laughs) It's kind of important. He says, that's good places. I think that looks like a good place. And, And from his flesh, he says, that would be a good place for me. I could prosper down there. And boom, in verse 13 of chapter 13, he says, yeah, but the people of Sodom are really wicked. Verse 14, God shows back up on the scene. After Abraham yielded to his nephew, he goes, now we can talk about this. Now we're going to make you great. You're going to be, you know, uh, as, as many as the stars as you see, that's the number of your offspring. All this land, north, south, east, and west, look around. It's all yours. See, when he left in chapter 12, he told Abram to leave his family behind, his father's household, but he brought his nephew with him. That's a great source of discussion for later on, but he was obedient to a point. Now God had to make the rest of the se- the final separation so he can deal, just deal with Abram. That happens in our own lives all the time. Sometimes God asks us to separate us from something, and we make a 98% separation. Nevertheless, God's still waiting on the 2%. He's happy with 98, but we haven't obeyed him until we have 100% separation from the thing that he's asked us to separate from. Verse 18 of chapter 13, Abram builds another altar. Now I want to stop here. This is like the third or the fourth altar. Sorry, I lost track along the way. 
The only reason I want to stop here is because when you meet with God, there better be an altar built in your life. Whether you write it down on paper, you put it down in your computer, you just have some place that you can go back to and remember what the Lord said. Because we've talked about this before, that place of remembrance, sometimes we have to run back to. Sometimes it's not for us, it's for our family members. Sometimes they're going to walk past. Remember when the Israelites came through the Red Sea and each of the heads of the family had to bring a boulder with them and they built an altar over here. Joshua did the same thing when they were crossing on over before they went into Jericho. Build an altar over here. And he says, you know why you're building an altar? It's because someday your kids are going to ask you what happened here. You need to build altars in your life so you can go back to those places so you can tell your kids, this is where I met God, so that your ceiling is their floor, so that they don't have to relive all the stuff that you had to live. This is where I've come. And they say, oh, I can go off from this place, okay? Genesis 14. See, that's a good recap, right? Genesis 14. First 12 verses, you got five kings from the horrible land that were submitted before to this. For 12 years, they were submitted to this other king. The 13th year, they said, I'm done with you. I'm not, I'm not serving. I'm pay, not paying tribute anymore. And so that king came along with three other kings. So it was five against four. And there's this battle that's taking place. That's what's happened in the first, four, uh, the first um, 12 verses. Verse 14 through 16 is where I want to start to focus in on. 14 through 16, here's what happened. Lot and his family were taken, and all the possessions from the king of Sodom were taken. And some dude escaped it. In verse 13, and he ran to Abram, he says, your nephew's gone. Everything's gone. So Abram, being a man of God that believes the sovereignty of God, sits back and says, well, God, what are you going to do about this? I trust you. That's not what happened. Abram said, men, take up arms. Let's go. Because our brother is in need and we're on our way to help him. Now, he didn't go out without the power of God, but he also wasn't sitting back and waiting for two rafts and a helicopter to come save his nephew. He said, let's go do this now. And when he went out, he won the battle. He didn't just get Lot and his family and all Lot's possessions. He got everything. He took it all back. And as he's coming back through, verse number 17, I want to start reading from there. As he's coming back through with all of the possessions and all the spoils of war, it says in verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Meet who? Him. Adam. Oh, I'm sorry, Abram, Abram, not Adam. Adam. Adam's probably not with us anymore. Sorry about that. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, Shaveh, Shaver. That is the king's valley. Why don't they just say that? After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, or words to that effect, and the kings who were with him. So here we have Abraham coming, Abram coming back from war with all, the, with all the bounty and the people that were taken. Nothing was lost, or at least nothing indicates there was anything lost. Everything was coming back. And here comes the king of Sodom, here to meet him. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine, he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, him who? Abram. This king Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, being Abraham, gave him, being Melchizedek, a tithe. So here we have with Sodom coming on up to meet Abram, the Melchizedek shows up on the scene. He blesses Abram. He blesses the Lord. And Abram says, here's 10%. Okay. Verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person and take the good, take, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord most, uh, Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who were with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. That's it. That's the end of the chapter, chapter 14. Here's what I want to share with you. Besides the oath that we read in Psalm 110, verse 4, and these three verses, there's no other mention of Melchizedek. Which is why in Hebrews 7, he has no beginning, he has no end. Interestingly, in the Israelites, we read, if you go through Numbers and you go through the Chronicles, you're seeing this guy begat that guy, begat this one over here, and you know who's who everybody's. You can do the genealogy. Even Matthew starts off with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Genealogy is very important to the Israelites, to the Israelis. It's very important. It shows their lineage. Which tribe are you from? Gideon says, I'm from the smallest tribe. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Whoop de doo, still a big tribe. But Benjamin was the smallest of the 12 tribes, okay? The point is, Melchizedek, as it says in Hebrews 7, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know where he's going. All we know is that he was king of righteousness, king of peace, as we saw in Hebrews 7, and that he shows up on the scene after a battle. <laughs> And he was give, after he, he sees Abram, he blesses Abram, Abram gives him a tithe. Okay? Everybody's on, 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 uh, on board with me, right? Mm -hmm. In verse 21, after Abram was blessed, he then gave the tithe. Then the king of Sodom and said, the rest of the chapter, he says, just give me the people, you can keep all the money to yourself. That's kind of a very important thing because... Where did the king of Salem come from? I mean, the king of Sodom come from? He was standing there the whole time. This is happening in front of the king of Sodom and the whole time. Imagine it's like an Alfred Hitchcock movie, right? You're right knee deep into the middle of this movie, and all of a sudden Alfred Hitchcock just kind of strolls in and then strolls off. You know, or the Avengers movie, right? And you have uh, Lee... Lee Iacocca, what's his name there, the creator? Oh, come on, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, he just has these cameo appearances. He just shows up. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Stan Lee. 
shows up in the middle of the movie. You don't even know, hey, there's Stan Lee. It's like, I used to watch the movies just to see when Stan Lee was going to pop up, okay? That's kind of nut that I am. But it's the same kind of thing here. You're in the plot. There's a battle. Five kings against four kings. Lot is, is taken. Abram shoots on out there, grabs Lot, he grabs all the possession, and he comes back, and the king of Sodom and Sodom is getting ready to say something to him, and Alfred Hitchcock comes out. Completely random. I want you to kind of see what's happening here. This is so important. This is such a weird chance encounter. I'm going to give you a little information here. Have you ever had a situation that God just broke in the scene out of nowhere? I mean, out of nowhere. You've got this thing going on in your life and you're so deep into the drama and God breaks into the scene. That's what we have going in here. It's not a distraction from the story. It's the reason from the story, okay? The last couple of verses after the king of Sodom says, uh, just you keep all the money. I don't care about the money. Just give me the people back. Abram says, I already rose my hand. I already swore I'm not going to take one thing from you. I'm not going to take one thing from you. I want you to remember chapter 13, verse 13. The Sodomites were wicked people. And we see the end of Sodom later on in this chapter, and later on in this, in this book. The people of Sodom are wicked. Abram knew it. Lot knew it. Lot was willing to compromise his values so that he didn't get all the good of the land. I know this is probably not the right thing to do. I know this is probably not the right area to go. But look how rich it is. I could really prosper down there. Certain things happen when we compromise our values. Certain things happen when we know the right thing to do and we choose to do the other thing. Okay? All of these things happen with Melchizedek right in front of an evil king. Mm -hmm. And I want to point this as a, the, the moral of the story. And it was true then, it was true before then, and it's true now. Every person in this room, whenever you have something that you've received from God, there will always be two trees in your garden. Bill Johnson preached a message about this once. I wasn't able to find it. If I can find it, I'll send everybody the link. But we all have two trees in our garden. The promises of God and the, the twistings of the enemy or those things that he can try to steal. And we get a choice in our lives. We get to choose which tree we want to, we want to nurture. Okay. Remember uh, Mark 4. Early on, several several weeks ago, when we I told you we really need to go back there, and we, this is the end of the first week. You need to go back there and read the parable of the sower again. Remember in Mark four, uh, the, the the middle of the chapter, I think fifteen through eighteen or fifteen through twenty in those in that area, Jesus was explaining the different kinds of soil and how important it is that we have good soil. Okay, but we're determinate of what kind of soil we have. We choose what soil. Every single day we can choose, do I want to be ch uh, choked out by, do I want the word to be choked out by all the cares of the world? Or do I want to have good soil where I can bear fruit? Okay. Um, in verse 15, 
Jesus is explaining this, and these are the ones, he was talking about uh, the, the, the soil again, he's explaining it to it, and he says, these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown, where the word is sown, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time talking today, these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. See, anytime God gives us a promise, Satan is there right away to try to steal that thing. And if he can't steal it, he's going to give an imitation. He's going to show you an imitation or another option for you. You will always have two trees in your garden. We cannot lose hope over the fact that I chose the wrong tree the last time. There will be another garden for you to be standing in and another two trees to look at. You should never get to the point where you say, well, last time I really screwed this up, I don't, I don't want choices. You got choices. Because that's where maturity comes from. Okay? Um, how do we know which, which tree to choose? Here we have the, the story of Melchizedek. We have the king of Sodom. And we have Melchizedek side by side. How do we know which one we're supposed to choose? Bill Johnson, I, I hate to keep bringing up Bill Johnson. I have a lot of different mentors, but Bill Johnson is just like, he's got like a gazillion different videos. I, I can spend more time referring back to him. But I have a lot, a lot of different mentors over the years that I turn to, whether it be T. Austin Sparks or Spurgeon or Finney or the list just goes on. Dave and Elise Cosgrove, more Elise and Dave. But I'm just saying there's a number of people that are or have been in my life that speak into my life. But Bill Johnson gave this illustration. In Genesis chapter 30, when Jacob was with his father-in-law and he was ready to break out, remember, um, his father-in-law changes wages like 10 times, right? And he finally gets to the point, he says he's been serving his father-in-law, uh, you know, forever. And now it's time for him to build up his own thing. So he goes to me, says, I tell you what, you see these speckled, ugly, Sheep, I'll take those. You take the good ones, I'll take those. And any time a sheep is born, it's ugly, you know, it's speckled and it's imperfect, I'll take that one for mine. But if it's, it's born without, you know, without blotch or without speckle, you can have that one. And, you know, he's the father-in-law's like, cool. First of all, there's not that many speckled ones. And on the second hand, they're pretty ugly sheep, you know. No problem. We'll make that separation. But here's what Jacob did. Whenever there was a really strong sheep, he would take a rod, he would take a, a, a what do you call it, a stick, and he would scrape off some of the bark. It would be spotted. It might be streaked. And he would pound that sucker in front of the water trough, or he'd throw it inside the watering trough, so that when the strong sheep came over to mate, or came over to drink and to mate, they would look in that. They would behold the spotted stick. And they would have offspring that were spotted or that they were striped. And if they were weak and punery and nasty little sheep, he would take that stick out. Here's what Bill Johnson said. We be, uh, hang on, we reproduce what we behold. Those things that we're looking at that's what we're going to reproduce. For Lot, he was looking at that beautiful land. And yeah, there was sin there, but there's a beautiful land. He re reproduced that very thing. 
for the for Jacob, he put that spotted stick in the water, and the strong sheep would have spotted or speckled sheep. We behold what we're staring at, what we keep before us. That's the thing that we will reproduce. Okay? In my experience, we'll always have two trees. Whenever God has given me a word, we had Ed Trout here. Back about a month ago, he gave a, a word for me and my wife. I know from experience that means there's going to be another tree there. I just know it. My focus is on what God said, not in any imitation that comes along. My wife and I just had a conversation. I told her um, Sunday when we were coming into church, I said, I really think that I've heard the Lord on this, but I'm going to continue to press in. Because one of the words that Ed Trout said you know, from the Lord is that I'm very impulsive. That has surprised nobody that knows me. No one. So I'm trying to be very diligent in not being impulsive, and I'm waiting on the Lord. And yesterday, my wife and I had a conversation, and I said, hey, I really think that I'm going to move forward with this. Nothing. Silence. And I was like, well, what do you think? What are you thinking about that? She goes, well, I don't know. That voice of her not knowing is louder than anything else besides the Word of God. Because I know she hears from God. And when she said, ah, I don't really know, I said, fine, I'm just not going to do it. And then she goes, well, what if I'm wrong? Stop it! I don't need a third tree in my garden right now. Here's a fourth tree, right? The point is there's always going to be some distraction from the truth. And what am I going to look at? What am I going to focus on? When Melchizedek showed up, Abram, a righteous man, whose heart was after the Lord, didn't even think. He had already raised his, horn, uh, his hand and sworn he was to God he wasn't going to give that man anything. But God shows up to confirm himself. He had his eyes fixed on what the Lord said. He didn't have his eyes fixed on the trappings of this king. He didn't care about him. Um, I want to point out in the story, while King Sodom looked on, while this King Sodom was looking on, the king of Salem uh, approached Abram, that's Melchizedek, and blessed him in verse number 19. And as we see here in verse, I want to go back to Hebrews 7 and verse 6, because I, I was looking for it, I didn't see it earlier. Hebrews 7 and verse 6. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abram and blessed him who had the promises. Melchizedek recognized that Abram already had the promises of the Lord. He was there as a confirming power only. He was there to confirm the word of God, okay? Can you see the two trees in this situation? Is it obvious that even way back then, God gave us an opportunity to choose righteousness? Going back to Hebrews 5 and 6, it takes maturity to make a choice for the Lord. We're going to make choices that are not God's choices for our lives. We're going to. It, all, it happens to all of us. But through that, are we willing to learn? When the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and He chastens us for making a wrong choice, He doesn't beat us about our head and shoulders. The chastening of the Lord is sweet, Proverbs says. This is a good thing for us. 
Nobody likes chastening for the moment, Paul says, but it happens. And when it does, it's a good thing. It's like Jesus. I'll say it again. Dave Cosgrove taught me that Jesus had so much of the, he was so heavy in the gravity of God that he can walk on water. He didn't, he wasn't moved by the gravity of earth. He was moved by the gravity of the Lord. Okay. Jesus is, as we see in Hebrews chapter 7, he is our eternal high priest. He intercedes for us, as it says in verse 25 of chapter 7, he is forever interceding for us. Forever and ever and ever. He is our advocate. He is our cheerleader. He's there advocating for us. He's interceding for us. If we stumble, he's there to pick us up. He is cheering us on. He's rooting us on. Forever and ever and ever. I believe any time that we're faced with a decision, Jesus breaks into the scene to confirm his word. I just believe that based on my experiences. Okay, and until I have that, I I can't move. His breaking into the scene to confirm his word is exactly what Melchizedek here. But I want to say this. This was not the first time that God broke into the scene to stop somebody from doing something stupid. Genesis chapter 3, the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brings a good gift Cain brings a gift that God's not pleased with. Okay? Cain has that jealousy and that anger that rises up inside of him. Uh, did I write it down here? Let me go into chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. I want to read it. I thought I had written it down. <clears throat> Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? This is after the offering that was not accepted. And God continues in verse 7. He says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? Tree number 1. And if you do not do well, here's the key, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. Sin has a desire, and its name is Cain in this particular moment. But in our lives, sin has a desire, and his name is Don. Okay? Fill in your own name in the blank there. Sin has a desire, and his name is you. That's the second tree. Okay? But you should rule over it. Two trees. God says, my acceptance is right for you here, Cain. Just do right. I accept you. Do right. Tree number one. Or you can continue down the path that you're on. But I got to warn you, sin is crouching at the door. And he's looking for you. But you have the ability to rule over it. We have the ability to rule over sin. We have the ability to make good choices. And when we make good choices in accordance with the will of God, we're we're moving closer and closer to a mature walk with the Lord. Make good choices, okay? I always told my kids, from the time that they can drive and from the very first time they can go out on their own, 
I tell them, go out and have fun, but make good choices. I'm not going to tell you the number of times they did not make good choices. I'm sure you have your own stories. But I tell them, make good choices. Why? Because making good choices is a sign of maturity. Just because you have a car and you have the keys doesn't make you mature. Just because you're going on out to do things without the watchful eye of your parents doesn't mean you're making good choices. It doesn't make you mature. What makes you mature is when your buddies are all over there at 16 years old and they're all drinking beers. You say, no, I'm not about that noise. That's making good choices. Or they're passing the, the bong around. Hey man, just take a quick hit. Oh no, that's not for me. That's not my thing. That's making good choices. Would I love my children any less if they did those things? No, of course not. I love them. But are they mature enough to be able to go out again? Probably not so much, for at least for a little while. God is doing the same thing to us. He allows the second tree to find out if we're willing to make good choices, if we want to move towards maturity. Okay? Um, remember the, 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 the previous lesson we had in Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, we talked about how he's always making um, uh, intercession for us. We discussed the Israelites that couldn't enter into rest because of unbelief. And what I believe the Lord had me to share with you guys was that we have to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, Right? Here, I want to I point out the rest of the story and a confirmation of what we talked about in Hebrews 3. Because we just read the last several verses here in Genesis 14. If you need to, turn the page to the beginning of Genesis 15. Once again, Abram shows up after victory, and he takes nothing from the king of Sodom, except for the couple of workers that were with him that really needed to be paid. He takes nothing for himself. Okay? He chose to be blessed by God. Genesis 15, sorry. He chose to be blessed by God. He chose to give a tithe to honor the man of God and to recognize God saying, none of this is mine, the victory is yours. King of Sodom says, keep the money. He says, I'm not about that noise. I'm not going to have anybody saying, you made me rich. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. See, the Lord will always be our reward. Always. And not just any reward. He'll be our exceedingly great reward, just like our children that make good choices. God puts us in a situation that we have to make a choice. And he does that because he knows that we can make good choices. If he didn't think that we had the strength or the maturity to make a good choice, he wouldn't put that in front of us. That would be a temptation, and God doesn't tempt. Okay? But if you are faced, uh, we have somebody, some of you, are, you're, you're probably all familiar with this person. Recently, the person had a, a word from the Lord. 
I have to be very careful how I walk through this. This person is now in a very dark place because the second tree rose up. And this person is spending time chewing on the second tree, which negates the power of the first tree. We give our faith to one or the other. We're going to give our faith to one of these trees. We're going to focus on one of these trees. We're going to enable one of these trees to grow fruit in our lives. Any time God gives you a word, it's because you're strong enough to resist the enemy that will rise up against you. Oh, I can't believe God did this to me. God didn't do anything. God wants to reward you. God wants to cheer you on. God wants to say, go, you can do it. Go ahead, brother. If you're going to let it out, let it out. God will, I know, right? Munsey. God will always be our reward. He will never, he will never, we, we, we're going to try to drink the water in the future, not inhale the water, okay? God will always be your reward. He will never put you in a situation that a second tree rises up that you can't resist. Never. What kind of a good father, loving father would do that to you? He wouldn't. So if you're facing resistance on something that the Lord has given you as a promise, you're strong enough to see that promise to the end because God said, and God will do. But you got to make good choices. You got to realize what we talked about the last time. Maturity is a very important thing to God. Revelations 3, uh, 3 verse 2, when he was talking to that church, he says, your, your works aren't perfect. You're not even moving in the direction of maturity. You got a nice facade. Everybody thinks you're all alive. But you know, and I know you're dead. God didn't do that. They did that to themselves. Making good choices is a sign of maturity. Um, and, and I'll read this last statement. We will show our maturity as we recognize that every decision is met with two choices. If God gives you a promise, there's going to come up something in opposition to it 100% of the time. It's going to happen. We have to know that. Only one is the will of God for our lives. And the other one is going to rob us from our reward. Only one of those trees can grow and bear fruit. Only one can bear fruit. And it's the one that we're going to focus our eyes on. Only one will reproduce fruit. It's the one that we focus on. Remember the story of Jacob. The one who invited us into a better covenant is not based on religion. It's based on righteousness. And it's based on relationship. He is our greatest cheerleader. So, in closing... Make good choices. Invite the choices in your life. Invite God. If you haven't experienced the promise of the Lord recently in your life, maybe you missed it the last time. Say, God, I'm here. I want to make good choices. Holy Spirit, you're supposed to be that great helper. Help me. 
make good choices. But if there's a conflict that arises between something that God says and anything else, make good choices. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, people.